This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. On Monday, a well-financed and politically prominent coalition announced it had filed paperwork for a ballot measure to significantly change Measure 110. In case anyone needs a reminder, that's the measure that voters passed in 2020 that decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illegal drugs like fentanyl and meth and put cannabis tax dollars toward addiction programs and services. But now, with the spike in overdose deaths, there is a growing sense reflected in polls that Measure 110 is not working as intended. That is what the coalition is arguing. They want lawmakers or voters to re-criminalize the possession of hard drugs. Max Williams is one of the leaders of the group. He's a former state lawmaker, former head of the Oregon Department of Corrections, and former CEO of the Oregon Community Foundation. And he joins us now. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate the invitation. What's your diagnosis of what's wrong right now? With Oregon or Measure 110 <laughs> generally? That's a uh, tough question. Okay. We, we have a limited time. Let's stick just with Measure, measure yeah. 110. Well, so— I, Although I, I am curious yeah. what you would say otherwise. No, let's yeah. stick with the topic no, at hand. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, um, I think the intention of Measure 110 was, was great. Um, uh, one that, uh, from an intent standpoint, I supported and still support which is that we capture the cannabis dollars, the tax revenue from the cannabis dollars, and we invest that in treatment and recovery for individuals dealing with addiction. Um, That was the beauty and I think the promise of Measure 110 that Oregonians really um, were attracted to when they voted for it. I think what hasn't worked very effectively, and I don't think it's worked effectively anywhere uh, in the country, is this idea that we would decriminalize these hard drugs um, and to do it, frankly, before any of the infrastructure was in place to address this issue. The, you know, we've underfunded um, addiction recovery and treatment services in this state for years. You know, probably decades. We have some of the um, lowest rates or highest rates of untreated addiction in, yes. in this state. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and um, and yet we went ahead and made the decision to decriminalize before we had actually used those cannabis resources to start to build more capacity. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges uh, that we had with the measure. Um, if, I, if, that, if it were just a question of timing, would do you think you, you wouldn't be here? Let, let's say that, that the voters passed Measure 110 as they did in 2020, but OHA was much faster at, at getting money out the door. It, do you think you would still be here? Uh, you know, it's hard to prove the counterfactual, I think. Uh, I Look, if we had said we're going to spend four to six years building uh, in-depth treatment infrastructure and then visit the question of decriminalization, I think we might have had a different conversation. But we didn't choose to do that um, in the measure. And I can't still quite figure out why that is because the idea that we could tip up the services that were needed in 90 days, which is what the measure required, um, just doesn't seem you know reasonable in anybody's estimation. So, you know, I, but what I do believe is that, um, you know, there are other things that have happened in the intervening period of time. Um, and, you know, Measure 110 didn't create the homelessness crisis. It didn't create Oregon's long-challenged behavioral health crisis. Um, it didn't create um, uh, all of the issues we're dealing with with respect to crime. But I think it has exacerbated those issues at this point. What is, how can you say that in terms of the data. Why are you, are you confident that Measure 110 in particular, because the question here is should voters or should um, lawmakers 
change this. Right. So why are you so sure that Measure 110 itself is to blame for what we're seeing? Well, I, again, I won't say it's 100% to blame for any of it, but I do think it's exacerbated the problems. And I think you talk to folks who are in any of our communities that are dealing right now with the challenges of the open-air drug markets and the other situations, and I think they would tell you that things got dramatically worse um, when we decided that we were no longer going to use any aspect of the criminal justice system as a bridge towards treatment and recovery. The reason I bring this up is that I looked at CDC data from the last couple of years, and mm -hmm. if we're just looking at overdose death rates, which is a, a, a big part of this, it's not the only one. I mean, that's yeah, that's separate a, from, yeah. from, as you're talking about, open-air drug markets. And, sure. But but it's, it's maybe the most dramatic and the most urgent version of this crisis, people right. dying. Right. Um, if you look... All over the country, um, those overdose death rates are up, most likely because of fentanyl. I think that experts want to be careful about, about ascribing it, but it seems pretty clear that's what we're talking about. If you compare Oregon to a bunch of other states that had comparable overdose death rates pre-COVID, because some states are way above us, despite right. our, our problems, we're right. actually, we're not doing worse in many states. But if you compare us to Alabama, California, Colorado, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Tennessee, these are all states that in 2019 were about where we were. All those states ended up with overdose death rates that are um, roughly speaking about where they were in 2023, comparatively speaking. In other words, when I look at that data, it doesn't seem like Oregon with Measure 110 is an outlier. It seems instead that that we have been caught up in this national terrible zeitgeist of fentanyl. Well, there's no question that fentanyl is a national problem. Um, but I think there is a difference. I mean, and I think the issue isn't so much the raw rate as it is the rate of increase. I mean, if you look at that same CDC data, they will tell you that from 2020 to 2022, our overdose rates went up. The rate of overdoses in Oregon went up by 70% compared to 17% nationally. O opioid rates were up 98% in Oregon, overdose rates, as compared to 19%. And um, oh, no, I, But I'm looking at, at data that goes to January of 2023, and, and the, the rate of increase is comparable in these comparable states. So I, we're, I, I think we are comparing apples to apples here. It, it's, it doesn't seem in these states where we, where we were around in the same neighborhood, I don't see big differences in the rate of increase in overdose deaths. Well, and I guess I would say we may not want to be comparing ourselves, frankly, to every other state. I think we need to look at what's actually happening on the ground in Oregon. Uh, the recent journal uh, just published, I think, this month, the Journal of Health Economics, went back and looked at the data of um, what's happened in Oregon and determined that we had 182 additional unintentional drug overdoses, uh, overdose deaths that occurred in 2021, and they tie that directly um, to the decriminalization aspects of, of Measure 110. I should say, th and that's, that is a study, but that only looked at unintentional overdose deaths. It didn't look into um, deaths by overdose deaths that were, that were ruled suicides or ones that were undetermined. And when you add those in and you look at the more recent data, I, it's not clear to me that Measure 110 is as clear a culprit. I, I, we, we, I don't want to belabor all this data. I just right. I put this out here because it does strike me as as important to have some grounding in to the extent that we can, and it may be that 10 years from now, there'll be better nationwide data yeah, and maybe. granular state data, and we'll, we'll know. But when we're talking about making new changes to state policy, it's, 
I just wish we had a, a, a much clearer sense for what the policy means now, but it may be that there are some limitations. Right, I, and, there, and there are limitations. And what I wish is that we would have actually, as I said, invested in, in treatment and recovery infrastructure before we decided to experiment with decriminalization. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that earlier this week, Seattle City Council voted to step back from this policy and actually recriminalize um, possession and public use um, because of the similar kinds of challenges I think they're facing um, in their community that we were facing here. So this isn't as though we're somehow charting some brave new course differently. We're simply saying, and, and the reason I got involved in this is because I don't want to repeal ballot measure 110. Um, the idea that we should be investing greater resources in treatment and recovery and using strategies and the version of this uh, measure that we've identified is not just simply about the application of criminal justice resources as a punishment. It is literally to find that segment of the population that is not currently otherwise motivated to seek treatment and recovery and to use a minimal amount of that resource to try to move them towards treatment and recovery while simultaneously providing some protection to themselves, the individuals on the street who are actually dying of overdose deaths, um, and also for the community that's suffering the community harm associated with this crisis. How would diversion programs work as as you understand it? Well, there are a couple of different levels. And, and first and foremost, I want to say that there are a number of incredible treatment providers who for the first time in years through the Measure 110 money have some resources to actually be doing really important work on the ground with peer support and other strategies. And so to the extent that those programs can continue to be funded and they are effective in getting people out of, out of the addiction and into recovery, we should continue continue to use those as much as possible. But I think most of those people would acknowledge that there's a segment of this population um, that is so highly addicted that they're not amenable to entering into that kind of program and yet are still causing both harms to them, harm to themselves and potential harm to the community. So the idea of uh, diversion would be uh, that the bill allows for communities to establish pre-arrest diversion programs like something that uh, is often referred to as LEAD, law, uh, law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, where they don't even take the person to jail. They route them towards a treatment provider as an option if the individual wants to go. So this is different than drug courts that have no. been around in Oregon for 30 years? Yeah, no, there's a second level, obviously. If people aren't willing to do that, then you move to the next level. And then there's another sort of you know, choice in the, in the, in the map where they can choose to go, again, into something like a drug court-related diversion program. But each time there's – in a sense, you're adding a stick to what now is just a carrot. With the, uh, with, with the thinking that, that, that for some people that's the only way to get them into treatment. Yes, with the, with the thinking that for some people that's the only way to get them into treatment. But with the promise, by the way – that at the end of whatever the diversion strategy is, whatever the treatment is, or whatever the supervision requirements are, that once completed, there would be an automatic expungement of that crime off their record. So the idea here is not to stack up additional misdemeanor offenses on somebody's record, and it's not to put people in jail beds. It is truly to use a minimal amount of the criminal justice resource to motivate that very difficult group to motivate into treatment and recovery, and some Simultaneously, and I think this is, I think we just have to honestly say this, to also provide additional support for the communities that are bearing the cost 
of this current crisis. Um, and, and, you know, perfect example, I was downtown the other day and I had a meeting that required me to grab lunch just across the street from Pioneer Courthouse Square. I walked into a sandwich shop and they had a full-time station security guard in the sandwich shop. Later in the afternoon, I had a meeting with somebody at a coffee shop. I walked into a coffee shop and there was a full-time stationed uniformed security person standing in the coffee shop. Not a law enforcement, uh, sworn law enforcement officer, not police, but these institutions that are having to pay the price of this challenge um, in their own institutions. But and it's, it's that kind of anecdote, which, and, and anybody who's been in downtown Portland recently, um, I, I think that they'll know what you're talking about, right. but it does make me wonder if now you're you're starting to oversell the effects of, of what this new change would be. I, I, are you actually, are you arguing that if drugs were recriminalized, it would lead to a wholesale change in, in a kind of security atmosphere or, or, or feeling of safety or a feeling of lack of safety in a place like downtown Portland? Um, I'm not saying that it would be a wholesale change at all, but I think you have to start someplace. And I think the sense right now is that there isn't any place where this is actually starting. And frankly, local governments are going to get to decide, even under this measure, what they want to do. It's up to a local prosecuting attorney. It's up to the local law enforcement about how they want to apply these things. So that's that's local control decision-making. And so Maybe this won't have those direct changes, but what we are doing is we're giving communities around the state an option to use a different method. And again, the point here is not to punish people who are who are possessing these drugs. The point is to try to move that very difficult set of population um, into treatment and recovery. In a perfect world, Dave, we would never need law enforcement involved in this at all. We'd have a sufficient, robust treatment infrastructure that looked different than what we have in the United States, but that's not what we have right now. These are the tools that are available for communities to use. Before Measure 110, there were drug courts, there were treatment courts mm-hmm. in counties all across yeah. Oregon. And Oregon had the second lowest rate of imprisonment in America for drug offenses. That's that's according to former Clatsop County DA, Josh Marquis, who who um, <laughs> loves to email me. Um, and and, and he, But he wrote that to us when, when people were, were in a sense uh, talking about uh, the saying that there's too much criminalization of of drug possession. And he pushed back to say that's not actually, that's not the case in Oregon. But with all, all this is preamble to, because like one of the things I'm wondering is besides putting more cannabis tax money towards treatment, um, keeping that aspect of measure 110, right. I'm wondering how what your, what you want lawmakers or voters to do would actually be different from the previous status quo. Well, so first, l- let me just say on the on the issue of um, the incarceration of people with drugs, we really haven't put people in prison for drug possession in Oregon for probably more than thirty years, uh, and that's and that's true. We've handled it at the local level through community supervision and other strategies, um, and and that's sometimes I think uh, we get wrapped up in the national conversation about that issue, and it actually isn't uh, reflective of what took place in Oregon. But even then, um, you know, what we know is that's not the best environment for people who want to ultimately get into recovery or seek recovery. But I will also tell you that I've had numerous conversations, um, both when I was running the Department of Corrections and since I've been engaged in this effort, from people who have told me that it was their engagement ultimately with law enforcement um, and their time 
either in jail or under supervision that was the trigger they needed to ultimately move into treatment and recovery uh, and an abstinent life. I mean, the great part about Measure 110 is we decided that we wanted to try to meet people with addiction where they are. The disappointing part for me about Measure 110 is we're choosing in many cases to leave them there. But so to go back to this question, besides the, the keeping the infusion of cash from cannabis uh, purchases right. going towards treatment, how is what you're talking about, how is what you want going forward different from the old status quo? Well, the old status quo didn't include um, this minimal use of, of law enforcement resources. It didn't include the diversion concepts at the same level. It didn't include automatic expungement of the record for someone who actually I thought that treatment. a lot of those things in drug courts were a part of I thought the promise of drug courts for decades has been an expungement that that, that this, this crime no longer exists. As long as you stay clean and you follow the, these protocols, you, the record will be expunged. It, it, but that expungement wasn't necessarily automatic in those cases, and it required different um, different engagements. And drug courts run differently on a county by county basis. So this structure didn't exist in the way that we're sort of putting it forward. So you're you're law. saying that this would be a, a more robust and maybe more. Um, easily accessible version of diversion. That would be our hope. That would be our hope. Um, and and I want to say that one of the challenges that everybody's facing is even with the cannabis money, Dave, there isn't sufficient resource right now for treatment. If you looked at recent studies, you'd see that we have a huge gap in what we need, even with the cannabis dollars. And we know that the cannabis dollars are, are, are going to decline to some degree because of the price of cannabis has declined and the tax revenues, therefore, are going to decline. So one of the things that we're hopeful at is that the legislature would see this as a place where we need further investment in Oregon, particularly in light of the issues that we're dealing with, with just fentanyl for sure, but not just fentanyl, with um, issues involving meth as well. There's a huge meth problem on top of this uh, that is also, uh, it's, a, it's a unique problem. It's different than the way people react with fentanyl, but it's creating additional challenges. So we want more investment in these issues. We want more money for treatment. What about more money for a very overburdened justice system? In a sense, you're, you're saying the justice system needs to be brought back into this conversation. It was a mistake to take take it out of it. But we've had many conversations recently about the the disastrous condition in terms of public defenders and, and other aspects of a very overburdened system that is in some places grinding to a halt. Now you want to put more work back on their plates. Well, it, it, and, and back is the, is the operative word. We knew how to do this in 2019. Um, so it's not like it, it's not like in 2019 we didn't know what we were doing, and now in 2023 we're asking them to. These systems existed, uh, you know. There are all sorts of challenges. You started this out about you know what's wrong with Oregon. I think was your question to me. Um, I said, yeah, it, it, what's it, your diagnosis? Oh yes, in the a, context, I thought of my intro. I thought it was yes, clear, but yes, fair it's, enough. It's a big, it's a big question, and yet I don't think we simply say we're not going to do anything because other systems aren't responding. You know, this is a this is a question about leadership. And we need leadership at the legislative level by the governor and uh, by local leaders to address these issues. Um, and so we simply can't say, well, because other things are broken, we shouldn't be trying to fix this issue. We shouldn't be trying to address this issue. What's the idea of, of, uh, of adding misdemeanor theft cases to those funded for supervised probation? That, that's one of the ideas embedded in this proposal. Right. Um, what you have 
have right now, uh, Dave, is people currently who are picked up on misdemeanor theft cases. Um, and these are misdemeanor theft cases that are linked to, to drug use, right? They're, they're, they're basically – the theft is to support their addiction. So for folks who are dealing with addiction and picking up these misdemeanor thefts, right now what happens is they typically get a bench probation, which means there there is no supervision um, for them after they get it. And so they end up just stacking up additional offenses. So what we're proposing here is they actually be provided supervision. And the idea of that supervision, again, is to help motivate them into treatment and recovery. And so of, it's in a sense, it's a way to cast a wider net to, to, to bring more people into this uh, court-ordered version of treatment. Yeah. If, if, so when I was running the Department of Corrections, uh, I would say 70-plus percent of the population um, had an addiction-related issue uh, that they were evaluated on when they came into the system. Almost no one was in there because they had possessed drugs. If they were involved in manufacturing or distribution, actual significant quantity dealing, they might be in prison. But otherwise, they were in for either a person crime or a property crime that resulted in a felony with more than a year's sentence associated with it. And that's what got them into prison. Um, and, and so while they weren't in prison for their for violating drug laws, they were in prison as a result of their addiction. And what we're trying to do with this strategy is to actually intercept them early in the process, get them the help they need, and avoid the stacking up. Because right now, these people under under this uh, bench probation approach with these um, misdemeanor thefts can continue, they, they'll, they'll continue to spiral. And eventually, they'll either have a person crime or a property crime in many cases that will result them in getting a felony on their record. And you know we don't want more people with felonies on their record. We don't want more people going to prison. We know that a person with a felony on their record typically has when they get out, it cuts their lifetime earnings opportunities in half by 50%. It almost guarantees a challenge about living in poverty. So if we can intercept people early um, and use a balanced approach in the criminal justice system to offer people treatment and recovery and to help them avoid further more serious crime. We both protect the individual, we help their families, and we protect the community from further damage. You are moving forward with a potential ballot measure, but you also have been clear that you want lawmakers to act on this sooner. What have you heard from lawmakers in your conversations? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a I'm a former lawmaker, as you pointed out, a former judiciary chair. I really don't like ballot measures. That's um, not my. Because this should be the work of experts. This should be the work of experts. <laughs> okay. It should be the work of experts, and and so my hope is. Um, that the legislature will act on this between now and the February session. Um, if not before, then at the February short oh, session. You mean you want a, for a first a special session? You're talking about you're talking I, with urgency here. I, I would. I mean, people are dying. I mean, I would love a. I would love that. That's what you want. But what, what have you session. heard? Well, I've had conversations with a number of legislators, um, some in legislative leadership. I think they understand that they're going to need to do something. Um, you know, I think the Senate president just acknowledged recently in a conversation that they would be taking this issue up in February and and uh, we're very hopeful that they will um, if they stop if they simply say give uh, cities the ability to um, to regulate the public use of drugs would that be enough for you to uh, 
to not put the ballot measure forward? Well, I think it'd be there'd be a whole uh, set of factors that would have to talk about, but there would be nothing that would make me happier than not having to run this ballot measure because it would tell me that you know our political system is actually responsive and working. Um, I would say that if it's simply um, uh, criminalizing public use. Um, I think that's a bit of a challenge um, uh, because I don't think it gets to the underlying effects of um, possession. I don't think it gets to the issue that right now um, these drugs are sort of ubiquitous with very low costs. So public use just simply means that the person can go somewhere and take the drug. The same consequences for them as the individual happen. The same consequences for the local community in which they're you know taking these drugs and operating happens. So I think it's uh, a little bit of a sab. Now, We've included a public use element in our measure because we think it's a tool that law enforcement and communities ought to have available, um, but we don't think it goes far enough. We think you don't get to the heart of the issue without actually talking about possession of these very, very dangerous hard street drugs. Max Williams, thanks very much. Thanks, Dave. Max Williams is a former director of the Oregon Department of Corrections. He's part of the coalition that wants lawmakers or voters to make major changes to Measure 110. Monday on the show, we're going to revisit our conversation with the comic artist and now graphic memoir writer Kate Beaton. She's most well-known for her comic strip, Hark a Vagrant. Her new book, Ducks, is about the two years she spent working in Alberta's oil sands. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great weekend. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford, 